Well, good evening. Great to see you guys. I love this room. I really like, uh, I can see everybody and uh, really enjoyed being with uh, your teachers. And we had a great group at 5 o'clock. And uh, Case uh, is a new friend, as he said uh, just a minute ago, and uh, really excited for what God's doing in your church. He was telling me a little bit about your church and uh, a little bit about the area. And um, we got to visit probably for the last couple of months through email on the phone. And last week I really got more details about uh, some of the challenges y'all are facing, some of the opportunities that God's brought your way as a church. And then seeing this and seeing the facility and so forth is uh, very, very exciting. You're a blessed people. I was bragging on your leaders because uh, more and more churches have stopped doing training. And everybody just kind of does what's right in their own eyes, uh, kind of like the Dallas Cowboys. Um, but uh, I am very excited about and appreciative of a church that says, you know what, we want to uh, have a clear strategy for uh, reaching people and discipling people and enfolding them into groups uh, where they can receive uh, care and ministry. And that's what uh, Case has asked me to talk about uh, tonight, is uh, realizing that many of you are part of the leadership team, uh, whether you're a teacher or a director or an outreach leader, prayer leader, whatever. Uh, and most of the folks that come to church on Saturday night, excuse me, on Sunday night, uh, are at least a part of the group ministry. Uh, he asked me to speak specifically to what really is the focus, uh, what really is the strategy uh, for how uh, this ministry can reach, help your church reach her redemptive potential. And so that's what I want to talk about uh, here in the time we have uh, tonight. So I hope you've got a listening sheet. We're going to run through this uh, pretty quickly, and um, I think we can, we can make it through. First of all, uh, every group requires a leader, right? I mean, there are some leaders that have a title, and there are some leaders that may not have a title, but every group needs a leader, and every church uh, needs a leader. And, and I would imagine, if you're here on Sunday night, uh, you're not, you may not be just a part of the Bible Fellowship, or the, the uh, Life Group Leadership Team, but you are a part of some form of leadership uh, at the, in, in the scope of Woodland Hills. And uh, let, me, let me just put a bright light on two particular characteristics or qualities that uh, your church needs uh, as they look for and as they have a leadership position. The first one is a bias toward action. A bias toward action. Um, the person that I think about when I think about God's Word and uh, a person who demonstrated this particular attribute was Peter. Uh, you may remember the story in Luke 5. Uh, Peter has had a rough night fishing. Things haven't gone his way. You remember that story? And he comes in and he meets Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, can I borrow your boat? And he's kind of just doesn't know who this guy is. He's a little frustrated from the night of fishing he's had, but he says, what? He says, yes. And Jesus uh, gets in his boat, pushes out a little bit from the shore so that more people can uh, gather around and hear uh, what he's going to teach. And um, after he finishes teaching, he says, uh, hey, let's go out and fish. And Peter's like, dude, I have no idea who you are. Uh, you teach really well, but... You're obviously not a fisherman, and I am. And I've been fishing tonight. Didn't catch a thing. 
But then Luke 5 says something very, very uh, interesting. It says that Peter said, Because you say so, I will. Because you say so, I will. And Peter passes that test that Jesus gives him. Peter demonstrates a bias toward action. First, in loaning him his boat, and second, by letting Jesus take him out to fish again. And you know how the story ends with a massive, massive um, catch of fish. Every leader needs to have a bias toward action. Now, that doesn't mean that every leader has to fix every problem, but they need to be sure that problems are being addressed, uh, that ministry opportunities are being taken care of, that people are being followed up with, that... Um, things are ready and prepared when the group gets together. That that group, your group, whether preschool, children, students, or adults, uh, is doing what it can to reach its redemptive potential. The second characteristic I think of is a faith-based optimism. A faith-based optimism. David is uh, the example I think of when I think about this characteristic in 2 Samuel 12. Uh, you may remember the story that came to mind when I think about this particular characteristic. Uh, David and uh, Bathsheba have conceived a child, and uh, the child is sick. It's very sick when it's born. And David kind of stops being king. Uh, the Bible tells us that David stopped bathing, he stopped eating, he stopped making decisions. And then his advisors, his helpers, were very concerned about him. They uh, were just torn up about the fact that he wasn't eating, that he wasn't caring for himself, and they tried to bring him food, but he refused it. They tried to get him to do various things that, that uh, they needed him to kind of keep the ball moving down the field as king, and he wouldn't have anything to do with it. He fasted, he prayed, he was torn up about the health of this particular baby. Well, one day news came to his leaders that uh, the baby had died. You remember the story? Uh, David notices that they're kind of off to the side and they're talking amongst themselves. They don't want to tell him what had occurred. And David notices that they're whispering among themselves and he just says, hey, did my baby die? And they said, yes, king, your baby is dead. And David gets up and he asks for water to be drawn and he takes a bath. He asks for food to be brought in and he eats. And he begins to make decisions again. David begins to king again. And in that moment, his leaders, his advisors are just perplexed and they're like, King, we don't understand. I mean, while, while your baby was alive, you, you basically just shut down. But now that your baby is dead, you're, you're going on with life. We thought it would be the inverse of that. And David said, no, while my baby was alive, I begged God for mercy. I pled for mercy. But he has chosen to demonstrate justice, to act justly. He can't come back to me. But one day I will go to him. And David demonstrated in that moment a faith-based optimism that I've got to demonstrate it as a leader. And that Woodland Hills needs you to demonstrate as a leader as well. That... At times, things don't go the way we want them to go, right? In our homes, in our businesses, and sometimes at church. But there's got to be a faith-based optimistic leader who says, you know what? We are going to be true to God's Word. We are going to seek God's face, and we're going to follow His direction that He has for us as a people. Even if it's hard, even if it's difficult, I'm going to hold to God's promises that He will build this church. 
that this was His idea and that He is going to get glory for Himself through our church family. Well, a winning leader has a bias toward action and a faith-based optimism. At times in church life, if your church is much like mine, because of the busyness of just the course of a week, um, Sundays have a habit of coming around real often, right? And before we know it, it's Sunday again. And why do we do church the way we do it? And why do we put so much emphasis on group life? And what are we trying to accomplish in our groups? Um, At times, vision can get just a little muddy. It can get a little unclear. And so that's why Case, that's why your leadership put this weekend together, is just so we could crystallize why it is we do what we do. In 1952, there was a lady named Florence Chadwick. Florence Chadwick was uh, the first lady to swim the English Channel. Uh, She swam from England to the coast of France, and no female had ever accomplished that before. Florence was from Southern California, and her dream growing up in the San Diego area was to swim from Catalina Island to the mainland of California. And so she began to train after she had swum the English Channel. She began to to train and to get her body ready and her mind ready for that uh, long swim. And on the day that was set aside for her to do that, she stepped into the water off of Catalina Island uh, with two rowboats on each side of her, one with her coach and her mother in that boat, and another with two men in a boat with paddles just to beat the sharks away, to keep the sharks away. I'm out at this point in this story. I mean, if, if there needs to be a boat with an oar to keep the sharks away, I'm not swimming. But Florence Chadwick is braver than me. And uh, she got in the water and began to swim from Catalina Island to California. And after swimming for 14 hours, she said, I'm done. Pull me into the boat. Her coach said, Florence, you're almost there. Don't give up. You're you're almost there. The problem was, on that particular day, it was incredibly foggy. Just a dense fog had set in off the coast of California, and Florence couldn't see how close she really was to getting to the mainland, California. But they relented. They pulled her into the boat. And at her press conference, just a couple of days later, after she had rehydrated and after she had been uh, gone through various uh, physical treatments to ensure that her strength uh, had recovered properly. At the press conference, she said, you know, if I, if I just could have seen it, yeah. I believe I would have gotten there. I believe I would have made it. And sure enough, a few weeks later, after fully recouping, uh, she got into the water on a, another foggy day, but not near as dense, and she swam from Catalina Island to the coast of California with her mom and her coach and two men in another rowboat by her side. If only I could have seen it, I would have made it. At times in church life, in times in our families, in times in our walk with Christ, our vision just gets kind of foggy. And we can't see where we're going, and we need to be reminded. And that's where I want to take us in the next few minutes. I want to remind us of our three key values of a good group ministry, of a strategic, biblically-based group ministry so that when you go through a foggy time, you can encourage one another with, hey, this is what we're to be about. This is where we're going. This is why we do groups, whether for children's ministry or for student ministry or for adults. What are our key values? The first one is reaching people. Reaching people. 
Um, your group ministry is the bringing and including arm of the church. Um, every year at our church, we start new groups. And the reason we start new groups is that um, new groups grow best. New groups are the easiest uh, for new people to connect with. New groups are the most eager to welcome new people and to look for new people and to include new people because they want their group to thrive. And where do those new people come from? Mainly they come from people working the worship center or working their health club or working their business or their neighborhood and inviting and bringing and including people to come to their, to their group. Um, we have section hosts in our worship center. And uh, we might, like in this section this large down here, we might have two or three people that own this section. We're, they, they're called own-your-own-section hosts. So we have people sit where you always sit. We just want you to own your section. Might have two or three people there, and maybe two back there, two there in those smaller sections. But in these bigger sections, more people. And their job is simply to look for new people, to have their head on a swivel looking for new people, and to find people that they can take to their small group, uh, their life group. Um, that is one way that we get these new groups growing. Another way is that on occasion we have uh, what we call group connect. And uh, out in the lobby we'll have banners set up for our groups and our pastor will encourage people if they're new or hadn't found a group, they need to go by that banner and meet the volunteers that are there so that they can find out what is going on in particular groups and what the options are for them so they can plug in to one of those groups. But here's the deal. I'm going to give you three values for um, every group, and really they're for every church. And we would think, you might think, well, I should, we should give a third of our time, a third of our prayer life, and a third of our budget to each of these three values. There's three of them, so let's just divide everything by thirds. The issue is, the, the reality is, is that you and I have to give about 50% of our time, our prayers, and our budget to this particular value because vision leaks and mission drift occurs. And the next two things I'm going to talk about, you're going to go, we kill it at Woodland Hills on those particular things. We do that naturally. We are great at that. We are better than anybody else at that. And you may be. But this first one is one that every church struggles with. And you have to give a disproportionate, a disproportionate amount of focus and prayers and time and energy and budget dollars if your church is going to reach her redemptive potential, to reaching people. It doesn't just happen naturally. It's something that we have to be intentional about and really work on. In 2 Kings 7, there's a, a great story uh, where four men have been um, diagnosed with a disease. And they have a skin disease that is contagious. It's going to kill them. And the city is under uh, siege. And since everybody's dying from starvation inside the city walls, the, the city leaders, the king, the others say, let's just put these four guys outside the city walls. They're going to die anyway. And they might make other people sick. And we don't have enough food in here, so let's just put them out there and hey, it's a tough decision, but, but I've got to make this decision. Let's just let them go ahead and die. And so these four men are put outside the city. One of them says, you know what? We can stay here and die, or we can beg them for mercy, and maybe they'll let us come back inside the city and give us just some crumbs. But if they say no, at least we asked. We can't just sit here and die. 
Or maybe there's a third option. Maybe we go to the enemy and throw ourselves at the mercy of the enemy. You remember this story in 2 Kings 7? And for some reason he's persuasive. Somehow he's persuasive and he, he wins the day and he takes those three other guys to the enemy knowing if they just sit there outside the city wall, they're going to die. If they knock on the city gates and the city gates, the city people say, nope, you can't come back in here. We've already kicked you out. Why are you bothering us? Uh, they're going to die. And if they go to the enemy, the enemy may kill them, but they're going to die anyway, so let's at least try something. And so they go to the enemy, and you remember what happens when they get to that tent camp where they'd set up siege around the city? No one was home. God had created a sound that sounded like chariots and sounded like horses and sounded like a huge army coming. And the enemy had left. And they had left food and they had left drink and they had left clothes and jewelry. And, and the four men went in there and just filled themselves up on food and drink. And they took clothes and they took jewelry and they went out and buried it in the desert. And they came back and ate some more. And then one of them says, you know what, it's not right. It's not right for us to keep this to ourselves. Today is a day of good news. And we need to go back to the people that kicked us out of our town and tell them that the enemy is gone and food is prevalent and clothes and riches are at our disposal. It's not right for us to keep this news to ourselves. Hey, tomorrow, you're going to run into somebody and I hope this story from 2 Kings comes to mind. I hope when you encounter someone, when they talk about the brokenness in their life or the hurt in their life, that you go, you know what? It's not right for me to keep the hope that I have in Jesus Christ to myself. It's not right for me to hold on to this for myself and not share how they can have uh, a different perspective. They cannot share how they can meet Christ and they can know and experience what it's really means to be forgiven and to walk in that kind of hope and walk in that kind of, of just relief from the weight of sin. It's not right for me to keep this to myself. Let's at least try something, Woodland Hills. That is the first value of a difference-making group. Second is learning to walk with Christ. Learning to walk with Christ. In Ephesians 2.8, we read that we are saved by grace through faith. Saved by grace through faith. You know that. In Colossians 2.6 we read that just as we are saved, we are supposed to live. Well, how, how are we saved? We are saved by grace through faith according to Ephesians 2.8. So how are we supposed to live? By grace through faith. So one of the key dynamics, one of the key strategies, the key values for uh, your group ministry is to disciple people, to help them learn to walk with Jesus Christ. Not only to be saved by grace through faith, but to learn to live a life of faith. Just a few minutes ago, I was with our teachers, and I shared with them how in my class last week, we put a really bright light on the promises of God. And I asked them to claim one of these promises, to share that promise with a friend that was seated next to them, for them to pray for each other, and then for them to check on each other during the week to make sure... They really were clinging to, holding to, claiming that promise and not just sliding back into trying to do things in their own strength. So that's a practical way that we are helping people walk with Christ. Living by faith. Understanding 
their identity in Christ, to understand that they can't lose their salvation, that they are secure in Christ, to understand the habits that help them have a softer heart toward God, the habit of Bible reading, the habit of prayer, of hiding God's Word in their heart. You know, just a few weeks ago, I was with a guy that is the former uh, vice president of Lifeway Christian Resources, which is the world's largest producer of Christian resources. And uh, they've done a huge study on what helps people change. Now, Case would want me to say at this point that uh, being involved in a group and being involved in worship uh, or giving would help people change. And while those were factors that showed up to some extent, do you know what number one was? The, and it wasn't even close. It was like 70-something percent of what helped people change. You know what it was? It's the personal reading of God's Word. That's what helped people change the most. That's what helped people realign their priorities with what Scripture teaches the most. Regardless of how dynamic and effective and powerful a sermon was on Sunday, regardless of how helpful a lesson was in a group on Sunday, what helped people change the most was reading their Word on a, on a regular, if not daily basis. Guys, all of us can do that. All of us can do that. And we can help each other do that um, because of the relationships that are built in a group. Learning to walk with Christ. Number three is loving people. Loving people. Um, I could tell by the vibe, the whole feel of how things were going in the teacher session uh, that you are a loving church. Um, you, you take relationships seriously. And that is awesome. My personal opinion is, is that the groups in your church are the relational nerve center for your church. Um, it's, it's really impossible for people to build relationships in this room. Uh, you may sit in the same place every week, but when guests come in, they don't know that's your seat. And uh, they may sit in a different place. Um, and typically your pastor doesn't go, hey, turn and talk about this particular idea with the people seated beside you or turn and pray with the people that are seated beside you. There's, there's a greeting time like we had about 20 minutes ago, but let's admit it, that's pretty quick, that's pretty brief, and uh, everybody can be nice and pleasant and, and have good breath for that 30, 40 seconds, right? But this room is designed for our vertical encounter, our vertical relationship with God. This is the worship center. It's the, it's the place where we encounter God in a, in, a, in a vertical way. But you have rooms across your campus, across the other parts of this church, that are smaller in nature and are designed for horizontal relationships where it's people with people with Jesus in the middle. Um, your groups become the relational nerve center of the church. You can't hire enough staff to take care of all the pastoral care needs of a body this size. Um, at our church, and I'm assuming it's the same here at Woodland Hills, uh, when there's a you know, health issue or when there is a crisis in a home, the, sometimes our groups find out before the staff find out. Uh, sometimes when I get to the hospital, people from the class have already been there. It used to hurt my feelings, but now I just say, yay God, uh, because it shows our people care about one another. And what we've trained them to do and equipped them to do is to be sure that nobody falls through the cracks. 
But if people just come to this room and they don't get connected with a group, the chances of them falling through the cracks goes up and to the right and not in an area that we want it to do that. Um, this morning I taught our new, new member class and uh, I was telling them, I asked them, how many of you have already connected with a group? You found a group to connect with. And about probably, I don't know, I'm making up a number here, but let's just say 60 to 65% of them said that they had. And I said, I'm going to say one negative thing uh, in the next hour. And here it is. You ready? If you don't find a group, the chances of you being at Prestonwood this time next year is really, really small. It's impossible to build relationships in a room the size of our worship center. It just is. That's not why this room, that room was designed. And I would say the same thing to you. That's not why this room was designed. But people need relationships with other people. Um, they need to know someone's praying for them. They need to have people they can party like crazy with when something fun happens or some celebration happens uh, in their life. They need to know folks on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Well, um, let's look at our key strategies then on your sheet there. Uh, I've already touched on this a little bit. I'm going to hit three of these, but the first one is creating new groups. Creating new groups. There's a couple of reasons for this. One is um, not only do new groups grow best, new groups are more hungry to connect with new people, but um, for those of you that have been members at Woodland Hills for a long time, all of your connection points are filled up. Now let me say that in a different way. Uh, I'm a granddad. I've got two grandsons, and uh, one of them is three. Uh, one of them is just two months old. But when our baby, uh, our two-month-old, was born in July, uh, my wife and I drove up to Fayetteville to, see, to be there for the birth, be there with our daughter, and um, I got to spend a lot of time with our three-year-old grandson. And I got to tell you, three-year-old grandsons are way cooler than baby grandsons. They just are. I mean, I took him to get a donut, and when he finished that, I texted my daughter and said, where's the donut store? And she told me of one that we hadn't been to, and I took him there and got him another donut. I just sugared him up and then took him home. It was awesome. Um, but we played a lot of games. We read a lot of books. We did a lot of stuff. I mean, three-year-olds are the best. Uh, one of the things we played... Um, all of you will remember these things. They're, they're primary colors, yellow, red, blue, green. They're hard acrylic plastic. Uh, they're different shapes. They're circles, they're rectangles, they're squares, and you snap them together. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? What are they called? Legos, absolutely, Legos. Legos are fun to play with. They're, they're awful if you step on one and don't have on a shoe. You'll say things your mother would not be proud of. But they're fun to play with. I want you to think about your life as being like a Lego. Regardless of your age, think about your life being like a Lego. Um, different shapes, different colors, um, different purposes, different numbers of connection points. But think about those connection points being your hobbies, your spare time, your volunteer time, your occupation, your family, you see how quickly those connection points can get filled up? And every so often, your church needs you to do the hard work of prying open one of those connection points so that new people can latch on. 
God will continue as you pray, as you bring and include and, and have that, hit that number one value up there of reaching people. New people are going to continue to come your way as a church. Where are they going to latch on? Now, you may say your group is the friendliest group in the world and you'd love to have new people come to your group. And your group may be the friendliest group to the people that are already there. But what about the new people that come? You're not going to be unfriendly to them. Of course you're going to welcome them. But are you really going to have time to invite them to go to lunch after church? Or to include them in various things during the course of the week? Because your connection points are already filled up. Um, your group ministry is the employment agency of the church. More people are involved in leadership and serving in your group ministry than, by far than any other ministry in the church. And Christ followers, according to Ephesians 4, get a spiritual gift that is given so that the body of Christ will be built up, so that it will go up and to the right. And how can we think of at Woodland Hills more places for people to use their giftedness, whether that's in serving, whether that's hospitality, whether that's teaching, um, whether that's the, exhibiting the gift of mercy. Where can they use their gifts in a better place than through the group ministry? But at times, if a group has been together for a long time, all those ministry needs are being uh, completed. They're being accomplished. And people can sit on the sidelines and not get into the game. So again, new groups help give more people the opportunity to serve and to use their gifts. Number two is aggressively reaching out. Aggressively reaching out. I haven't gotten to visit with Case long enough to know how you do outreach here, uh, how you get information from guests, or what your strategy is. Uh, but whatever it is, be sure, Bible Fellowship, you're, uh, I keep calling you Bible Fellowship leaders. I told the teachers earlier, that's what we call it at our church. Life group leaders, be sure that you're getting that information about guests, whether they showed up in your particular group in Sunday, on Sunday at night uh, or not. I am blown away by how many times I talk to guests that come to our church that they say, who is this again? And I say, it's, it's Jeff Young. I'm one of the pastors at, at Prestonwood. Uh, you visited Sunday? Kind of like, man, did I get this wrong? And they go, you're calling me to thank me for visiting? They are blown away, in other words, with the fact that we would call and follow up. Um, that used to be something every church did. And it's just sad to me to think that churches have stopped just making a phone call and saying, hey, thanks for coming. And wanted to see if there's any question you had about Woodland Hills that I might could answer. And you, then you could pass that information on to staff. You could pass that on to student ministry or children's ministry or whatever. It just takes about seven minutes to have a great phone call with a prospect. Um, but we've got to shut the back door when God brings people our way, aggressively reaching out. Again, your church can't have a large enough PR budget or marketing budget to reach new people that move to Longview. You are the marketing budget. You are the PR campaign. Um, bringing and including people is our responsibility, according to Matthew 28 and Acts 1.8. Aggressively reaching out. Number three is genuinely loving people. Genuinely loving people. In case we need to finish in eight minutes. Okay. 
Um, did your pastor usually ask that in the middle of the sermon? <laughs> Generally loving people. Several years ago, I was watching a uh, golf tournament on Sunday afternoon, and I'm a firm believer that golf tournaments are on TV on Sunday afternoons so that people can get naps. And um, I was about 80% asleep, about 15% watching it, and all of a sudden, I heard something that just resonated with me. I sat up on the couch and uh, hit rewind and watched this ad, and it was an ad for United Airlines. But here was the gist of the ad. The ad started with uh, people walking into a conference room. And they, they were seated around a big conference table. And they were all nervously kind of looking at the desk. And it was obvious that the boss wasn't there yet. Because all of a sudden when the, this man walked in, everybody kind of sat up at attention. And uh, he said, the reason I called this meeting is that I got some really bad news this morning. One of our oldest customers fired us. They said they didn't know us anymore. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to set out to visit every one of our customers. I'm tired of getting you know, communication back and forth with emails or just being on the phone. We're going to get face-to-face -face with every one of our clients so that they can't say we didn't know them anymore. And then the voiceover comes up about United Airlines. If you're the kind of company that wants to give more than lip service to personal service, then come fly the friendly skies. But that's the phrase that got me. I want to be a part of a church that gives more than lip service to personal service. I want to be a part of a church that has a second mile service just as a part of our DNA that genuinely loves people. After this voiceover finished, the camera cut back to the conference room and a lady walked in with a stack of airplane tickets and she starts passing those tickets out around the table. And she gives one to the boss. And he takes it. He says, thank you. And he starts to walk out of the door. And just about when he hits the door frame, somebody says, hey, Carl, where are you going? And Carl says, I'm going to visit our friend that fired us this morning. I bet that Woodland Hills wants to be the kind of church that gives more than lip service to personal service, or you wouldn't have had a night like this where your group leaders can be encouraged, where they can be equipped, where they can be reminded of some things and given some tools that will just help you be more effective in reaching people and helping people learn to walk with Christ and in loving people. You know, there's some benefits there on your sheet. There's some benefits of helping people um, why we want to enfold people into community. One of them, number one there, is we get strength to endure heartache. Um, Galatians 6.2 says to bear one another's burdens and then you will fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, how can you know each other's burdens if people don't connect in a group? How are you going to know each other's burdens if you don't know people? Now, where will people feel like they can drop their smiley face mask in your church and share, hey, I have not wanted to share this. This is kind of embarrassing. But this is what we're facing with our teenager. Um, this morning I just was walking around the halls and I asked uh, my normal deal. Hey, great to see you. Hope you had a great week. Uh, how you doing? And people are supposed to say at church, great, right? That's the answer that I'm looking for. And I just don't even hardly stop moving. I'm just hearing great. Doing great. Had a great week. Have a great week. Good to see you, Pastor Jeff. But Grant said to me this morning, 
had a terrible week. And thank the Lord I heard him and didn't just go, uh, glad to hear it. Because I stopped and I said, man, what happened? What's up? And he goes, well, I got in an argument with my boss. He's been a real jerk all summer. And um, long story short, um, I'm out. No severance, nothing. Um, our moment, I was really glad I knew Grant. Uh, Grant's a piece of work. I'm not surprised that he got in an argument with his boss. Uh, but at that particular moment, Grant didn't need to be corrected. Grant needed to be hugged, and Grant needed not to hear, hey man, I'll pray for you. Grant needed me to pray for him right then in the hall. Um, we get strength to endure heartaches. You know how I knew Grant? Teachers know, because they just heard me share this a few minutes ago. Grant's in my group. And last week, Grant was in class, and Grant heard a lesson about God's promises and claimed one of those promises and that helped him get through a very difficult week. I couldn't have planned that. That's a Holy Spirit thing. Um, we get strength to endure heartaches. Calls, notes. If you, somebody asks you to pray for them, man, write it down. We forget. We're so busy. We forget. Write that down. Or, or say, I'll pray with you here. I might forget. And, and do it right then. Strength to endure heartaches. Second, we find acceptance despite our past failures and hurts. We find acceptance. Um, in my group, there's not one person that's perfect. Every single one of us have issues. And that makes us more concerned for each other. That makes us more forgiving of each other. That makes us more encouraging of each other. Third, we receive wisdom when navigating difficult decisions. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Um, where else can people go, Hey, I'm making this decision about uh, something at work, or we've got to make this, this call about this with my parents, or whatever, and who's going to pray with them? Who's going to talk through the pros and cons of things? Where are they going to know those people outside of being involved in a group? Well, what does a win look like? We all want to be winners. Uh, we want our group to reach... Uh, her redemptive potential so that our church can reach its redemptive potential. So what does it look like for our group to win? First, a group that leads people to Christ is a winning group. A group that uh, sees people come to faith in Christ. Um, listen, directors, teachers, you've got to talk about this. Don't leave this up to your pastor and to Case and other staff members to always be waving the flag about having gospel conversations. Uh, our world is broken. People are broken. And they try drugs, they try religion, they try philosophy, they try relationships to fix that brokenness, but all of those just lead them back to more brokenness. And God's design is that they be one with Him, that we walk in relationship with Him. And so how can we help extend that hope and extend that message of forgiveness? Well, it just comes by having the same attitude that those men did outside that wall. Let's at least try something. You are not responsible for someone crossing over the line of faith. The Holy Spirit's responsible for that. You and I are simply responsible for having the conversation. Um, so, whether it's somebody that would fit into our group age-wise, doesn't matter. But when you have 
a conversation that, that revolves around someone becoming a Christ follower, if they accept Christ or not, my encouragement would be to share that with the group on Sunday because that's just contagious. It just kind of fans the flame. Second, groups that love people. What does a win look like? Second, groups that love people. Groups that give more than lip service to personal service. Uh, groups that follow up with ministry needs, that, that go the extra mile in trying to help people. Um, we've got a couple in our class that... Um, any of y'all know people that are just hard to love? Um, some people are easier to love than others, right? And we've got a couple in our class that they're just kind of our class project. Um, man, they're just, they're just a challenge. For instance, they were down on their luck a few years back and uh, um, they needed some help uh, financially and our class took up a love offer. Nobody wanted them to know where the money came from or who gave and who couldn't and how much and all that. And so I just decided the best thing to do would be to go to Walmart and spend all the money buying as much groceries as I could. And so uh, I took my son, who was uh, in middle school at the time, with me to Walmart and we loaded up three carts with as much groceries as we could. It was, it was fun for me. I, my wife wasn't there. She didn't say no. I got all sugary cereals. I got everything. And um, we took this over to their apartment. And um, my son's got, you know, two bags, and I've got two bags. And uh, when the man opened the door, he looked at me like, what are you doing here? And I said, hey, we got once you know we love you guys and uh, we've been praying for you, but we wanted to just bless you uh, with these groceries. And the class took up some money and uh, I want to put this inside. Then I need your help. Back of my car is just full of groceries. We've got a lot more to bring inside. He goes, man, I wish you'd just given me the cash. <laughs> and I will never forget the look on my middle school son's face. It was shock, it was hurt, and it was, Dad, would, be, would it be okay for me to punch this guy? It was all that, all in one. Um, but I was able to talk to him once we took all the groceries inside about loving the difficult people. Jesus loves me. There's not anybody more difficult at times than me. And that's the kind of mercy and that's the kind of grace that I'm to extend as well. Third, groups that disciple people into the image of Christ. Now, how are you helping people with the habits of prayer, with the habits of Bible reading. If Bible reading really is the thing that impacts people the most and makes them transform the quickest and the most uh, consistently, how are you helping people do that? And fourth, leaders that duplicate themselves. Leaders that duplicate themselves. If you're going to start new groups where more people can connect on, then we've got to be like, we've got to be like uh, the writer of Proverbs who said, He that wins souls is wise. We've got to be like Paul, who said we, we are to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Uh, one of my favorite verses is in, in Philippians where he talks about Timothy and he says, I have nobody else like him who cares about what's going on in the church. Hey, teachers, directors, who are you helping become apprentices so that when it's time to launch new groups, you've got people that know the strategy, know how to get it done, where a year later you can go, man, i got nobody else like them that is launched out of here and now is helping another group of people connect with Christ and connect with Woodland Hills. Leaders that duplicate themselves. Jesus said to Peter on that beach, 
After he had uh, risen from the dead, Peter, I want you to go reach more sheep. I want you to help disciple more sheep. I want you to love more sheep. That is the gist of why we do groups. To reach people, to help them learn to walk with Christ, and to love people. In closing, um, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, and I love, loved more than anything else to play basketball. That was my favorite thing to do. And um, my junior year, we were really good. And um, I knew that if we got to substate, that we would get to play at Vanderbilt University. Uh, Nashville's in the middle of the state, and the way Tennessee did basketball and state playoffs back then was that if you won the Memphis area and you won the Knoxville area on the west and the east, you'd meet in Nashville for the sub-state and for the state finals. And we went through district, one district. We went to, uh, through regionals, and uh, we got to the regional finals, and we had to play one team and beat that team to get to, to sub-state. Now, the reason I wanted to play at Vanderbilt so much is because I'd grown up suffering with the Commodores. Um, I, I believe that Vanderbilt is the University of Tennessee, and uh, we're terrible at football, but we could compete at basketball, and it was fun to go to all those games. And my dad and I had season tickets. We went to so many Vandy games. And Vandy's gym, any of you all know how unique it is? You've seen it on ESPN or anything? The benches are on the ends of the court versus the side of the court. Huge home court advantage. The first few rows of the, of the uh, seats are below the court. So in other words, if you're in the first three or four rows, you're seeing ankles. The, the, the court is elevated, in other words, like a stage. It's a huge home court advantage. And I wanted to play on that court. It's a really cool gym. They still play on it today. But we had to beat Pearl Cone High School. Pearl Cone was in the inner city of Nashville. More athletes at Kentucky and Tennessee and Alabama from a football and basketball perspective than any other high school in Tennessee come from Pearl Cone High School. We went into that uh, school. Our bus pulled into a chain link fence with razor wire around the top and I, we shimmied down the side of the bus and that fence, the gate locked behind the bus. You with me about what kind of part of town we're in? And we went into that gym and down underneath the court to the locker room and changed and our coach was saying something to us and nobody was listening because upstairs something was being chanted over and over and over again. We couldn't hear what it was but we were already so intimidated. He finished his little talk, we finished changing, and we went up those steps and grabbed balls out of the, the cage to begin our pregame warm-up. And when we hit that court, it was crystal clear what they were saying over and over and over again. You've got it, now use it. You've got it, now use it. You've got it, now use it. Guys, they said that for like 15 minutes without stopping. Our coach called us over to the bench. He gave us some last-minute instructions, and we went out for the opening tip. And I remember coming back to the bench at the end of the first quarter, hands on my knees, looked up at the scoreboard and realized I was never going to play at Vanderbilt University. They did have it, and they did know how to use it. We got drummed. When it comes to building an effective group and building a strong church, reaching people with the hope that's only found in Jesus Christ, enfolding them into groups where you can disciple them and help them learn to walk with Christ, and being sure they are loved and cared for and ministered to, reaching, learning, and loving. Woodland Hills, you've got that. I want to encourage you to use it. God bless.